idea. Listen, um, we are jumping in uh, this April to four letters that this guy named Paul wrote, this early follower of Jesus. And each of these four were written from prison. All school year long, we've been tracing our way through the teachings and the insights about Jesus from this, this early follower named Paul. And, and we started the year by looking at six of his 13 letters. Um, and, and we tapered that off around the beginning of Christmas or the beginning of December. And then we kind of got into his theology and into the guts of the things that, that stand underneath what he wrote in the, in, in the intervening months. And, and we're picking up here as we're coming to the end with the rest of Paul's letters. We got seven left to go. And this April, we're hitting four. Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. All four written when Paul was in jail. Here's the idea behind it. Today we're doing Philippians, and by doing it, um, it isn't just to know Paul for his own right. That's interesting in its own respect, but but by by, kind of getting into his mind, this is the hope. He knew something about God. He knew something profound about Jesus. And by going into his writings, we can get into Jesus more and know him better, and by knowing him better, love him more. I want to read you this verse that comes out of the beginning of Philippians, and I love how this this version puts it. Paul says this, so this is my prayer, that your love will flourish, that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of. I love that. Guys, that's my prayer today too, that you learn to love, that you learn to love God, and not just much, but well, and that somehow God unearths and unleashes something in us that our love is not just a shallow, sentimental gush, but is introspective and intelligent and tested, and I think Paul can guide us into that journey. And that's where we're going today. Now, this letter of Philippians, you'll find it in the New Testament. Paul writes this letter to a group of believers in a city called Philippi. And I threw it up here on a map for you. So if you can see Jerusalem there, kind of like, you know, the mothership or home base for the the early movement of of Jesus' followers. And Paul has been kind of making his way all through Turkey or what they called Asia Minor in the day. Now, the way that Paul got to Philippi, it's really kind of weird in its own right, and uh, it's really kind of just worth hearing this right out of the Bible itself. Check this out. So, it says that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Can you find Galatia up there? All right. Paul's traveling through Galatia. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, what does that mean? Like, how does the Holy Spirit keep you from doing something, right? 
When they came to the borders of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, all in the Asian area, all right? But the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Paul wanted to stay here. Paul gets a vision that he's supposed to go there. Paul wanted to stay here. God wouldn't let him I don't know how that worked. I don't know what that means. I think it's really weird. I think it's really cool. I don't know if I want to experience that in my own life per se, but part of me really kind of does at the same time. You know what I mean? So however God orchestrated this, God wanted Paul there. And sometimes it seems not only for us, but for Paul as well, God has to intervene to get us where he wants us to be. It sucks in the moment, but it's really good news. All right? And this is how Paul comes to this town called Philippi. Now, a little bit about the city. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, who you probably don't know, but you probably know his son named Alexander the Great. All right? This was a key city for him, but later Caesar Augustus, he made it one of his like imperial outpost cities where people had like full citizenship in the city of Rome. It was kind of like the, the, the little sister city of Rome from afar. Um, veteran Roman legionaries would retire there. I don't know if there was good spas there or great golfing or what, but they would go there, all right? It was populated with Roman citizens. Roman and Latin culture permeated the city. They were drunk on a partnership and love affair with Rome. And through this vision, Paul makes his way there. Now, when he gets there, he does what he did in every town he went to. He starts scoping out, where is there a local synagogue? Where is there a local gathering of Jews? People who know who Yahweh is, that I can start to reveal how Yahweh has fulfilled the scriptures in his son, Jesus, and explain to them who Jesus really is. And he finds some just outside the town. People are receptive to the message. And he spends some time there. And every week on the Sabbath, you get the sense that he travels out to teach and minister and and interact with these people in the synagogue again and again. It's really weird. One of the times he's going out there, he passes this, this slave girl who's possessed, all right? And what her possession, according to the book of Acts, does is it allows her to tell the future, which, let's face it, if you're going to be possessed, rock on, right? And it allows her to tell the future, and her slave owners, her her masters, are making bucks off of her because when she tells it, it ain't vague. And when she tells it, it actually comes to pass. Now, every time Paul is going by, she starts heckling him, crying things out like, you know who this is? One who's a servant of the Most High God who's telling you the way to be saved? It says, Paul gets so kind of just like fed up with dealing like with this. In my own translation, he turns around to her and he finally goes, shut up, all right? 
shut up. And the demon comes out of her. She's restored and she's healed. But she loses her ability. And her owners are ticked. Because their prize horse just isn't delivering like it used to. And they're infuriated. And they drag Paul and they take his traveling companion, a guy named Silas, and they drag him before the, the courts. And they say, these guys are, are usurping the Roman way. These guys are preaching an anti-Roman message. They are seeking to overturn our government, our culture, our way, and they turn on Paul and Silas. It says that they're, they're beaten severely. They're flogged. They're whipped. They're thrown in jail. And you can read this whole story in Acts 16 about how God then orchestrates this miraculous jailbreak, how God's power is seen every step of the way through the suffering that they have to undergo. And then Paul gets out of town. Now, I got some pictures here of the ruins of Philippi today. This is the town that Philippians is written to, the, the group of believers that Philippians is written to, a place where Paul suffered and a place where after he left, I guarantee you the suffering didn't stop for them. And when Paul writes this letter, he finds himself in prison again. Not in Philippi this time, who knows where, because if you're in prison once, you might as well do it again, right? He finds himself in prison again, and he's writing this letter to this church in this town where he suffered, giving them encouragement and hope and perspective about what it means to suffer in Jesus. Now, what you got to understand in the ancient world unlike today, is that when you find yourself in jail in the ancient world, food and your basic necessities of life would not be provided. You want to eat. It's up to your friends and your family members to provide you your food while you're in jail. Question, what do you do if you don't have friends? or family members. What do you do if you're a guy like Paul? He's out on the road. He's not from that town. Do they even know what city he happens to be in, the people who sent him? What do you do in a situation like that? Well, here's what the Philippians did. They fed him. They provided for him. They got behind him and they, 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 they scraped together everything they could. And they sent it with this guy. His name is Epaphroditus because why have a short name when you can? And they sent it to, to Paul while he's rotting in this jail. And what the letter of Philippians then becomes is really nothing but this long, it's a long thank you letter. It's a gush. 
It's a gush by Paul on these people who had not forgotten him in his time of suffering. It was a giant outpouring of gratitude and thanks that someone bothered to care in his time of need. And so at another level, what Philippians becomes about is an idea called partnership. Now, in Greek, it will be this word here, koinonia. And once upon a time, we looked at this word koinonia back in January, and we said that the best way to probably translate koinonia, at least the way Paul uses it, is right here, the fellowship of faith. But see, here's the danger of the fellowship of faith. I say fellowship, and where the average person's mind runs to is an idea of happiness together and joy and camaraderie and sentimentality and and just kind of a feel-good affection that we have from being in each other's company. You know what I mean? We like to hang out. For Paul, that doesn't come anywhere close to encapsulating what the word koinonia means. Because for Paul, it's more than just affection, liking each other, wanting to hang out, uh, you know, sentimentality, things like that. For him, it's partnership. And what's partnership? It's sharing. It's sharing in everything. Think of a business partnership. What's a business partnership? We share the risk. We share the cost. We share the reward, right? For Paul, it's the same thing that you Philippians chose to partner with me. You weren't content to say something like, yeah, we're in fellowship, Paul. We really like you, and you really make us feel good when you come here. No, when you hurt, we hurt. When you suffer, we suffer. When you're down, we come around you. Sharing in intangible and tangible ways the risk, the burden, and the cost with you. And I have found that when you share life together that way, It leaves feel-good affection and sentimentality in the dust. That reducing it to just feel-goodness can never come close to that level of connection that when you share in suffering and burden together. I'm going to give you an example um, of what I mean. And and, and just kind of put yourself out there on this. All right, you're going to hate this, but that's all right. Um, If you drive a Ford, stand up, okay? And just look around. Look around at your Ford brothers, all right? (laughs) All right, you got it? You can take a seat. If you live in the city limits of McHenry or any of its greater territories and kingdoms, no, if you live in the city of McHenry, all right, stand up. Right? 
Look around at your McHenry brothers and sisters. No, I'm tempted to say who drives a Ford and lives in McHenry and really see who rocks in this room, right? All right, take a seat. If you have lost someone close to you to cancer, would you stand up? and take a look around. All right. Which of the three matters most to you? Which of the three bonds you closer with the people in this room? That they have the same stuff as you? That they live in the same place? That they like the same things as you? Or that you've shared in something, even if you didn't realize it? Are you with me? Go ahead and have a seat. You know what koinonia is? It's that. It's a fellowship of suffering. This is what Philippians is about. Paul writing about a fellowship of suffering. A fellowship of suffering that has bonded him together with these people in this region called Macedonia in a way nothing else could. And he writes to thank them. Tell them what it means to him. And to bond with them and encourage them in their suffering too. And the reason why is because at some fundamental level, this koinonia of suffering, this this fellowship of suffering, it's what Jesus did too. Now, the absolute heart and center of Philippians is this little hymn. It's a song or an ancient creed. And Mark read it just a little bit ago, and it kicks off this way. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? He goes on to say, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a slave and being found in human likeness. It goes on to say that he became obedient to his father, though equal with his father, obedient even to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father because Jesus suffered. It means we suffer too. Jesus suffered, and there's no getting around this. We will suffer too. Paul suffered in Philippi. Now he's in prison again and suffering even more. And the Philippians who are left behind are these Philippian believers. They're suffering too. Following Jesus means 
suffering. But what Paul does in this letter is he helps these believers to see a different perspective and a different way. That in Jesus, when they suffer, it can be done with joy. To approach it with contentment. To do so with hope. Now, I'm just going to drown you here for a minute, all right? I'm going to drown you in Philippians. Because this is what Paul does. He drowns them with words of joy, contentment, and hope in their suffering. Follow these with me. He tells them, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He tells them, what has happened to me served to advance the gospel. He tells them, I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ may be exalted in my suffering. He tells them, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He tells them, to be with Christ is better by far if suffering should go all the way. He tells them, guys, stand firm in one spirit without being frightened in any way. Because when you do so, it's a sign to those who are causing you to suffer that they will be destroyed, that you stand with your head high and it will be a sign to them and a sign to you. You will be saved. He tells them, at the name of Jesus, every knee will Bow. He tells them, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the, the partnership of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. I want it. Because when I'm partnered with Jesus, I'm also partnered in his resurrection. He tells them, so I press on. And I hope you do too. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward. In Christ, he tells them, and we wait eagerly, not by our own power, but by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control and who will transform our lowly bodies in their pain. He tells them, the Lord is near do not be anxious about anything. He tells them, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He tells them, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And he tells them, rejoice in the Lord always. In good and in suffering, I will say it again, rejoice. Feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant Yet, he bombards them in this letter that the reality of life is suffering, but in Jesus there is a different way. 
a different approach, to face it with joy and contentment and hope. Because when we're partnered with Jesus, it means sharing in suffering and death, but it means sharing in exaltation and resurrection. And then Paul tells him, and mirror in your own life what you see in mine. Don't just hear what I say, but look at how I approach suffering too. And let that somehow in your own place of suffering bring you hope too. Because Paul wasn't content to just be on the receiving end of goodness and grace in his time of suffering. The partnership for him meant two ways. And he was willing to suffer for them too. I go back to what we said in the beginning. Paul writes, I pray, I pray that you would not only love Jesus more, but that you would love him well. And at some level, that means a partnership in suffering. And if you're here today, and you're trying to avoid it at all costs. Maybe consider looking at it differently. Getting in the game. Getting into partnership with others. And sharing in it all the way. And maybe if you're here today, and you're plunged neck deep in it. You got suffering crashing over your head. Remember that Christ and his people are standing there reaching out to partner with you. Read the letter. Connect with them. Immerse in the joy, contentment, and hope that only Jesus can bring to suffering. That's at least what Philippians has to say. So I ask, please rise and... Uh, this band comes forward. Let's not be afraid to come to God in suffering today. Too often in church, there's this, this, this persona that's put forward by people. that has got to make it look like I'm strong 
that I can hold it together. Stoic in the face of it. You know what I mean, right? What God invites us, I think, to instead is to share our suffering in honesty with him all the way. I want to invite you to take a few moments. Um, I got to believe every single one of us in here is suffering in some kind of way. What I'm going to ask you to do is just come to God with that. Ask him to relieve it. You better believe it, okay? But ask him for something more than that. Ask him for wisdom and insight and the power of his spirit to approach it in Paul's way. Can you do that? Let's pray. Lord, hear, hear, hear your people in their times of need and pain. Let your kingdom come, Lord. Restore us out of this mire and the hurt and the pain that marks life. Come soon. Come soon and make all things new. But in the meantime, oh God, help us as your people to approach suffering in your way. God, for the times that we've caused it, forgive us. For the times that others have caused it in us, help us to forgive them. God, for the times that our collective sin has just unleashed it on this world. Have mercy, O oh Lord. Hear a prayer of confession today. And I invite you to pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And now when Paul was in the Philippian jail, after being put there on trumped-up charges, being beaten and humiliated and abused and locked up. It says he and Silas are doing what anyone would naturally do in a time like that. They were in jail thanking God and singing hymns. God comes down 
It says there's an earthquake and the, the doors of the jail split off and they have their chance to flee. <laughs> the warden sees it and he knows it means his own life and he's ready to kill himself. Paul and Silas choose to stay and partner in suffering. It impacts this warden so much that he cries out, trembling, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Their choice to partner in suffering meant salvation that day. And by throwing yourself on God's mercy, believing in him, it means salvation for you as well. Embrace it. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, suffered. He took bread, he broke it, he gave it to them and said, take and eat, this is my body. I will be broken for you. I will suffer for you. Remember me? Partner with me took a cup, he gave thanks, and he said, drink of this, all of you, this cup, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. In this meal, Jesus invites us to partner with him in suffering and death and therefore resurrection. If you are hungry for it, then welcome to the table of the Lord. <laughs>